Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm joined tonight with my co-host, Jim Resky. We are going to be looking at some chapters in Genesis. Jim and I teach a Bible study on a men's Bible study, and uh, we've been assigned different passages. Jim, what are you covering and which part of uh, Genesis? Well, thanks, Craig. Uh, yeah, we're, so we're um, coming up in the new year here. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, I don't know when you're listening to it, but we are recording this uh, in December 2022. And with the, when we roll over to the new year in January, the whole thing starts all over again in our Bible study, and we are going to be starting in Genesis. And we, in this Bible study, it's uh, we walk through the Bible in two years and uh, go through uh, the Old Testament at, at a pretty rapid clip. And then kind of slow down and do the New Testament four chapters at a time. And so there's Bible readings associated with it for the people in the study so they can uh, follow along. And we have been saying that the main goal really is to get people into the word, reading the word every day. And then we just get together and talk about it um, uh, every Saturday morning. And then because there's over 120 people, there are usually 100 in the room, maybe 20 or 30 on Zoom. And then goes out on YouTube afterwards. You probably have like 50 people on YouTube afterwards. We try to... Um, you know, rotate through a group of speakers. I think we have seven speakers, Greg, and you and I are part of that team. That's true. That's right. That's, that's true. So you are going to be uh, looking at Genesis chapters 12 through 24 or 25. I can't remember. But um, let's uh, just step back for a second. We call this yeah. the Gospel Attic Podcast. Yeah. Because, Jim, you and I connected many, many years ago um, because we both kind of um discovered the same truth that's right <laughs> and that is that you know the the power of the gospel isn't just for when you become a believer it isn't just um you know for our salvation but the gospel is actually the key to understanding our our spiritual growth and all all kind of advancement um all kind of everything to do with sanctification is connected to the gospel. So, um, and you're in the process of writing a book, Lord willing, God so, willing, um, the, which ties in with this, this subject. So remind us, uh, give us a thumbnail sketch of, uh, of what your book is going to be all about. Yeah, sure, Greg. Appreciate that. Someday, maybe I'll come back on your podcast. If I can only be, uh, find a podcast that would take me as a, uh, an author, maybe, maybe someday, but look, the idea is things that we you and I talked about, like you said, years ago, the idea that the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. Um, and I think on a personal level, um, you know, I had uh, been raised as a Christian, raised in a Christian home, and always had um, believed in Christianity, but got to the point where it was basically very dry, and it was just... Uh, felt like I had to uh, be a good person and and, and um, earn my status with God. And when I finally got to understand the gospel, was probably in my 30s. It was like a revelation. It's just everything was totally different. And um, and I went from someone who said, "Look, I 
I still believe in Christianity, but I just not sure I'd recommend Christianity to anybody because it was so hard to be a good Christian and uh, to, you know, try to please God and do everything in the Christian life. Uh, it was just so, so hard. And uh, when I really started to get the gospel um, through some uh, incredible people and incredible preaching and other sources, um, everything changed. It was like a paradigm shift. And then, I, and, I, and then ever since then, I feel like I just can't stop talking about Jesus. So it's complete joy. It's, it's just wonderful and it kind of flows out of you. So that's part of it. Um, and then the, that's, that's the whole thing actually. Um, and then the, the book itself is an illustration that taking it from the basics of which I think you showed me a while ago, which kind of illustrates a way of living the Christian life. And we've talked about this podcast before, but it's always hard to talk about in audio form, something that's essentially an illustration or drawing. So we verbally try to tell to people if they're listening to the podcast, but it draws out the Christian, explains the Christian life in a way that's really easy to grasp. And, and that's basically what the book is about. It's almost like the gospel illustrated. So that's a quick thumbnail. That's great. Um, yeah. So uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and look at Genesis chapter 12. Um uh, what was that? My that's that's my dog here at at my feet. Oh, was, that was your dog. Longing to get into the this is the Christmas season. He's longing to get into the next room where my wife is wrapping presents. If you can hear oh, the dog. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. I'm gonna see if All I right. can uh, let him through, and then we can continue. Love my dog, like many, many millions around the world. Love my dog. Yeah. Um, hold on. Yeah, Jim, we like to talk. We talk a lot about like the default setting of the human heart and right. how it's towards kind of self-justification. That's right. And so obviously when you come to know Jesus, um, Jesus changes that and he, he begins to change you from the inside out. But the problem that we both have found is that we often just kind of go right back into that default setting. That's right. And, and so instead of focusing on inside out spiritual growth or spiritual change, which happens through the power of the gospel working inside of us, we start defaulting to outside in spiritual growth, which right. is falling into the traps of I've got to do more. I've got to, you know, I got to, I'm, I'm just, it's like stacking bricks of like all the different Christian activities you can get involved with and thinking that's going to change us. Right. And so, but anyway, let's go back to your illustration. Cause I think it's a really powerful illustration and I think you can kind of explain it verbally. In fact, if you're listening to it, you might want to get a piece of paper and a pen as he as Jim describes it, you can, you can draw it out, but going back to that default setting so often, you, um, because we, I don't think many churches teach what we call gospel driven sanctification, that the gospel is the key to our spiritual change. Um, so, so what we kind of default to is it's sort of like if you could picture a, a, uh, stock chart, where you buy ABC stock at a very low price. And then over time it goes up 
up and to so the right kind of you can yeah up and to the right you can kind of picture how your stock you know if you bought a good investing investment it's going to just go up and to the right and that's how um most people think of their spiritual life where the the you know going up means we're becoming more like god more um more holy and then going to the right is just over time and so over time we get better and better and better right and that i mean that makes total sense like from a from a uh a worldly point of view that that's how spiritual growth would happen but but you ha you developed or you and i've talked about a, a different way to look at uh our spiritual growth and there's some major pitfalls by the way with that first approach and that is you can easily fall into pride um or um you can just feel so defeated because you're you just you know you um you just get discouraged and and you just want to give up because it's so much essentially you're just you're just trying to um grow spiritually through all hard work and effort and yeah. it's and it's just all self instead yeah. of instead of relying on god so what does the alternative look like? Oh, well, before we go there, stay with your illustration for a second, because it's a good way to think about it. If you think about that, you mentioned like a stock price chart, you have time on the horizontal axis. And on that price, you, on that chart, you'd have price or the price of your shares on the vertical axis. And you say, you know, if everything goes right, you, you start at the bottom left corner of the chart. And over time, the line will go up and to the right and it would be worth more over time. And that's just a, basically a very simple chart with two axes and a diagonal line that starts in the bottom left corner and goes up and to the right. And that's the basic depiction. And so, um, you know, when you and I, when you were saying a second ago um, that a lot of churches teach this way or think this way, a lot of people get discouraged because they live under this. Um, it, you were right. It's not just you and me. I think that is the default setting of the human heart. And you could look at that and say, essentially, if you take that same chart and you say that the, the, on the horizontal axis is time, and the vertical axis is just goodness, righteousness, holiness. Every world religion looks that way. Every world religion will say, you need to, over time, become a better and better person. You need to keep the rules. You need to take the steps to enlightenment. You need to follow the Ten Commandments. You need to, they all look that way. And, and so every, every religion says, you know, why, why be surprised? You know, you have to work hard to justify your life. And so someday if you justify your life, then you'll stand in front of a, a, a God or your creator, whoever, and they'll say you're blessed and you got to climb that ladder, you know, up and to the right. And, um, and I think that you, you, you were right when you say a lot of Christianity defaults into that. I mean, I've been in churches where people would say, well, you know, you know, how the Christian life works, you know, Jesus starts you out. But then I remember one preacher was preaching and then he, he held his arm up at a 45 degree angle. And he said, well, you know, the Christian life looks like it kind of looks like, and, he stammered for a second. And he said, it looks like this. And he held his arm up, which means up and to the right. You're supposed to, you know, you're not a good, perfect person now. But over time, if you keep working at it, you too can move up and to the right and become a better and better person. Oh, sure, it's lumpy. It's not smooth. It goes up and down. But that's what the Christian life is. That's what it means. That's what it's all about is moving up and to the right. And in the drawing, you'd say, well, where, where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the bottom corner. He starts you out. You draw a little cross there at the crux of the lines. You say there's... Jesus starting on the Christian life. But after that, it looks just like every other religion. And you just got to work hard at your salvation. And what you said a second ago is so true. If you take that view of the Christian life, then you say the Christian life is essentially all about hard work and effort. 
hard work and effort. And if you're a teacher in the Christian life, you say, "I'm what well, your 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 purpose is to motivate people to put forth more effort." And if you would just put forth more effort, you would grow in Christ and move up into the right and become a better Christian. And that's what it's about. And it's not it. It's not it at all. You and I had many conversations about, and that's not the gospel. But the sad thing is, A, that we just said people, a lot of people teach that. Uh, B, a lot of people hear that. Maybe people listening to this podcast have felt like that's kind of their understanding of Christianity. That's what they've been taught. That's what they felt like. And they feel like it's it's it, it's it's impossible. It's dry. It's toast. It's impossible. It grinds you to powder. I can't keep up with it. It's no good. And eventually you say, forget it. I can't do it. And, and it's not driven by joy. It's driven by hard work and effort. Right. And that's yeah. just, and if you're doing well, if you're doing well at it, then you fall into like crazy amount of spiritual pride. <laughs> even worse. Even like, like yeah, yeah, I asked you this, if you've been in Bible studies where someone says, Hey, rate yourself in the Christian life on a scale of one to 10. Right. Yeah. Um, I always and, want to put myself at a seven. That's right. <laughs> but in my mind, I'm thinking I'm probably really more like a six or a five. Yeah. But I can't say nine. That's too. I don't want to. But yeah, but I can't. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 so weird to judge yourself like that, and that's that's the whole point. It shouldn't. We shouldn't even be focusing on ourselves at all. We should be focusing on Jesus. Just that's to back right. up a second, you know, I don't. I've been. You know, I've attended a lot of great churches in my Christian life. I mean. uh and I'm so fortunate that way. And I don't think the church is intentionally taught this. No. I think it's just so strong a default mode that if you were right. to ask, if you were just asked average people in the congregation, how do you grow in this Christian life? And you show them a, a like what you described, the single line, single line up and to the right. People would say, that's it. That's that's it. I think so. And I think it's because it's easy to grasp. It's the, it's what every other religion is. It's the default set in the human heart. Uh, and by the way, it's what everybody else says too. Religion, non-religious people do the same thing. They'll just, they'll say, oh, I don't believe in that religious stuff. You say, okay, well, tell me what makes your life worthwhile. I say, well, I believe in all the right causes and I'm on the right side of every issue. And I, and I've done, I've tried my best. And there are all these statements are statements of self-justification. They're like you just said, there's, you cannot live without self-justification. People always try to justify their life. In other words, they self-impose a single line, and then they put themselves in that line. Oh, I'm not perfect, but I'm. They're, what they're saying is, I'm a seven or I'm an eight on my line, whatever it is. But they can't live without a line. <laughs> and then, then you talk about Jesus, and they they, they say, well, well, we'll stop right there. And they hear every word you're saying through the line paradigm, through the single line paradigm. They think you're a Christian, and I know what you're going to say. Save it, because I know what you're going to say. It's a line, and there's Jesus somewhere, and you're a nine, and I'm not, and you want me to grow up and be a better person on the line. Well, I'm not interested. And they shut down the hearing of the gospel because they're going to hear what you're saying through the single line paradigm, because they think that's what Christianity is, just like every religion, and it's not. It's and it's so hard to get past that point with them, because that's the, that's just the way they hear every word you're going to say. So, yeah. So just to remind our audience here the biblical basis for what we're talking about, there's some key passages. I mean, first uh, Corinthians one 18, where Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us believers who are being saved, it's the power of God. That's right. And so there's a sense where 
Jesus saved us um, once for all for our sins, for our salvation. But he, but he also continues to save us from ourselves as we as we seek to grow in the Christian life. And then uh, another verse in Peter, uh, Peter says to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Grow in grace. And That's then the Apostle mean. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says, may I never boast, I think it's 614, may I never boast except in the cross uh, of Christ, um, for which I've been crucified to the world. Um, or <laughs> how does that one go? Um, but may I never boast except in the cross. Um, well, and I'll give you another one. And once you start seeing, once you get to the other paradigm, the two-line paradigm, you start seeing the whole Bible differently. So I'll give you another verse. I was just looking at tonight um, for our Genesis talk, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, Galatians 3, when Paul talks about, you know, how he says, Galatians 3, verse 2, this is what I wanted to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And this is the key verse, verse Galatians 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And honestly, before I got the gospel in my life in my 30s, I would have said, well, yeah, I am. That's the point, right? I got the start. I got the new start. I got a fresh start from Jesus. But I thought that was the point. I'm supposed to be perfected in my flesh. That's why I come to church and do all this stuff, to be a better and better Christian, right? And I guess I never read Galatians 3, verse 3, where he says, no, that's not how it works. You're not you're not growing in Christ by your hard work and effort. It's, it's the first Peter verse you just said. It's pure. You're growing in the grace of the gospel. The whole book of Galatians is a great example because it's written to believers and it's all about, hey, be yeah. careful. You're 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 straying away from the gospel. Right. And right. how the gospel's for for uh uh believers as well. So do you want to yeah. take a minute and just describe the two-line illustration for those yeah, who exactly. may be hearing this for the first time? Right. So grab a crayon. If you're somewhere with a piece of paper and a crayon, you can draw this out. So draw the same axes we were talking about before where you got time on the horizontal axis and holiness or righteousness on the vertical axis. And then you start about halfway up the uh, vertical line and you draw an upward sloping line. And, but that line is not a depiction of your improved spiritual perform performance or your actual improved behavior or anything like that at all. That is a depiction of your growing awareness over time of God's righteousness, his holiness, not yours, his holiness. And the same, go back to that, the starting point of that line, the where it touches the vertical axis, and start right there with your crayon and go make a downward sloping line. So the whole thing will open up. And that downward sloping line is a depiction of your growing awareness over time of your own sinfulness, of your lostness, of your your of, of your blindness. And that's why it's downward sloping. Over time, you become more and more aware of how lost and blind spiritually you really are and so at the beginning of christian life there was a tiny little gap between those two lines and that's when you came to christ and you said as a christian you say i know there's a gap between me and him he is holy and i am not and i need salvation those of us who have become christians say there's a moment in our lives we said jesus i need you for salvation and so in that little gap right right real close to where those two lines converge all the way to the left you draw a little cross that connects those two 
and then go a little further over and draw another cross. And the cross is bigger because the gap is wider. Because as you grow in the Christian life, you realize I'm more of a sinner than I ever thought I was. And also, largely through worship, that's why we go to worship in church. When we come to church and worship him, you realize how great and glorious and wonderful he really is. And yet he saved a wretch like you and me. And so the cross gets bigger in your Christian life. And so you draw a cross in the middle and then go all the way to the far to the right, where your two lines should be farther and farther apart, and draw another cross, and it gets even bigger. And so on and so on and so on. And the passage, since you mentioned Galatians, another great passage to look at is Romans and Romans 7. See, Romans 7, Paul says, I'm a mess. I never do the things I want to do. I'm always sinning. And um, I'm always, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. And uh, woe is me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It's almost like despair. And if you read that through the single line paradigm, then you say, well, you know, Paul's just being modest, right? He's he's talking about the struggle. He's working his way up the line. And he says, Lord knows nobody's perfect, but I'm uh, I'm here to tell you, you got to keep trying and climb the line, go back and work harder. And, and Paul would say, you're, you're not listening to me at all. I am really, really lost. Because in another passage, he says, I am the chief of sinners. I am I, I persecuted the church. I am a complete chief. Paul is growing. He's on the downward sloping line, growing awareness. And he says, his lines are a million miles apart. Because the reality is, you draw this little graph. It's all of the, the graph on, that we're talking about is all about your growth and of awareness, Right. God's actual holiness is a parallel line a billion miles up. Your actual sinfulness is a parallel line a billion miles down. You're just not aware of it. And gracefully, we're not aware of it. We're just growing in the awareness and over time growing awareness of how large a cross is that fills that gap for us in our place. So whereas before in my single line approach to the Christian life, I did all that stuff, reading the Bible, going to church, and they all, I thought they were all notches in my belt. They were steps on the ladder. They were pick your metaphor. There are ways to climb up the line. And now I do all that stuff. And all it does is point me to Jesus. It just points me to the cross, cross, cross all the time for what he did to me and for he did for me. And he did to me, save me. Right. And that's, that's the change. That's the big paradigm shift. And I got that. It's like, praise the Lord. I just can't stop talking about Jesus. And I think I was already going through that transformation when you and I met Greg. And then you kind of showed me that basic of that illustration. And I started, then we started through many conversations talking about it, realized there's a huge contrast here. It's, and um, it's, and then um, it's the contrast, not just those two lines, but the contrast of the single line. And then there's one more line that's really important. And if you still have your crayon and your piece of paper, go to the bottom of your chart, underneath the double lines, the, the diverging two lines, start in the bottom left corner and take a little dotted line and start growing it up gradually, slowly. And that is your actual change in your life. That is your actual change life because your life does change. You do sin less. You will clean up your speech and your 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 behavior and things do change in your life. It's just, it's dotted because you're not really that aware of it. You're really focused on Jesus the whole time. And as and in this view, there changes the results of the Christian life. And the single line approach, your your change, your spiritual performance is the point of the Christian life. Right here, you're just focused on in the gospel. You're focused on Jesus, and then change comes about, and the fruit of the spirit all grows in your life. But you're never really focused on it. You're never really focused on your own life. That's right. If you went to Paul and you said, "Paul, stop it with Romans seven, okay? You're a nine point nine on the single line scale." Paul would say, "You're not, you're not seeing this correctly. You're not listening to me. It's not a single line. I am way, way down. He's way, way up. Yeah, I'm, the lines are uh, his Paul's lines would be a million miles apart. The cross is so huge in my life." Paul would just talk about Jesus and he'd say, but you would be see his dotted line. He'd say, but your behavior is outstanding. 
And Paul would say, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even think about that. So yeah, hopefully that people can follow that verbally and draw it out. But seeing it that way, this is why I'm so excited. I'm sorry to go on, but this, I think if you see the illustration in just a few short minutes, you can pick this up. And it, if you're uh, if you're non-Christian, you could say that's not what I thought Christianity was, and it would change your whole view of Christianity. If you're a Christian teacher or leader, you could say, "Holy cow! I've been leading people, teaching people on the single line all this time. I need to I need to teach them very differently." And if even if you're a Bible study leader, you say, "I want to help people grow in grace, not shape up and improve their behavior and climb the single line." It just changes everything. Yeah, because the the engine of the Christian life becomes gratitude. Amen. Gratitude for what Christ has done for you. And by the way, your view of what Christ has done for you continues to change and grow and magnify every every year as you as you progress, which is which is beautiful because one thing about the gospel, we know that you can it is so simple that a child can understand it, but it's so uh deep and profound that you spend your whole life exploring the depths of it. It's like a diamond that you could, that just, you can never master. You can never look at, look at it in every angle. And uh, right. so, so um, yeah, that's, that's great. Well, that's what this podcast is all about is and that's why we say we're gospel addicts because the gospel not only brought us to Christ, but it's what's gr growing us in our faith in Christ. So yeah. um, good stuff. Good stuff. And we want to look through the Bible, look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel, too, because the gospel is a, a story, uh, right. a, a story right. of redemption and a, where you see you can see Christ in in every every book of the Bible, every chapter of the Bible. It all points to him. And here we are. We're going back to Genesis. Should we dive into Genesis now? Yeah, sure. Let's take a look. OK, so. We're going to just dive into Genesis chapter 12. I'll go ahead and read the first three verses, and then we'll make some comments. Uh, the, Lord's, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The change from Genesis chapter 11 to Genesis chapter 12, the the shift that occurs, I heard, I read one, one guy say that it's a bigger shift than the shift between the Old and New Testament. Really? How so? I knew you were going to ask me that. Well, because it's such a, it's, it's a big division of where all of a sudden you see God is focusing from uh from the beginning of the human race um the race as a whole to now he's going to start focusing on the beginning of the the beginning of the hebrew race and the family of abraham so um you know there's there's just this massive shift that's occurring all of a sudden you know we're going to be focusing on abraham which is going to lead us down the path to jesus yeah, so. that's absolutely right. Um, the first eleven chapters of the history of God's creation of the world, and and then kind of some um, other stories uh, leading up to the Tower of Babel in chapter eleven, 
which all kind of set the stage. And then now you 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 go from the whole idea of how the earth was created, how civilization started, and God's plan for the world, the fall of mankind. And now you turn the corner from chapter eleven from to redemption problems to now the story of one family, right? Um, you kind of leave that, and then the next from twelve to twenty-four is just the story of Abraham and Abraham's family. And that's really the story for the rest of the book. And that sets the stage for the whole rest of the Bible as well. So um, that pattern, creation, fall, redemption. Uh, you know, there's creation, there's the fall, and there's the plan of redemption, which is a pattern, by the way, in your own Christian, your own personal life. You, you're born as creation, fall, you realize your sinfulness as redemption for us, right? Uh, creation, fall, creation, fall, I'm not, you know, falls in, you know, sin. And then, uh, and then a story of redemption. Yeah, so... Genesis chapter 12, we start, it's like the beginning of the story of redemption. Right. Genesis 1 to 11 is focused on the creation and the fall. And now we get to see the, the beginning of the story of redemption. So, yeah. Um, yeah what, well, what are your overall thoughts about Genesis chapter 12? Well, you know, I just would tell you, kind of getting in, because I'm getting ready to speak on a couple of these, on these chapters, 12 through 24, basically the life of Abraham. So um, uh, a, uh, one of my primary researchers is uh, Tim Keller. And I should have mentioned this in my own personal story and my understanding of the gospel, because it was going through to Tim Keller's church, in, a Redeemer Presbyterian church in New York City, where we, my wife and I lived in New York City, that was where I really started to really get the gospel into my life. And where God was really, the Holy Spirit was really, revealing that to me through the ministry of Tim Keller. So I owe him so much. But then listening to uh, sermons of his recently to get ready to, to talk about this, uh, to understand it better. And he made a couple points, uh, actually leading up from chapter 11, which we won't read, but in Genesis 11, there's the, this whole the famous story of the Tower of Babel, where people are building this tower for themselves. And they say, you know, we're going to make ourselves a name. We're going to make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the course of the year. So they're going to give themselves a name so they don't get scattered. And this, this is a common, a lot of people will know, who will know the story uh, because it's uh, often told to uh, children because it's kind of a cute story. Um, and it's a, uh, a Sunday school or wherever your tradition is. Uh, the God comes down and confuses their language and they all start speaking different languages to each other. That's why it's called the Tower of Babel where we get the word like babbling uh, ever since. Um, and so they, can't, they, their speech is confused and then they're all scattered. So the very thing they didn't want to be scattered is kind of what happens to them. They don't get a name for themselves and they're scattered. Uh, and then you come to Abraham and God says, I'm going to give you a name. You're not going to give I'm looking for a name for himself. I'm going to give you a name. And But uh, first I'm going to scatter you. So I want you to go. Uh, and I want you to leave. And when Keller talked about this, he went first. I thought this, I, I would never have got this. So the very last few verses in in chapter 11 beforehand it starts with abraham's father named Terah, and uh tara it says here um had moved out let's tear this is chapter 11 verse 31 Terah took abram his son and lot the son of haran his grandson and sarai his daughter-in-law that's abraham's wife and they went out together from ur of the chaldeans in order to enter the land of canaan so it's not really written here, but somehow Terah was going to the promised land. God was moving him there. And then it says, and they went as far as Haran and they settled there. So they say, that's good enough. It's close enough. They didn't really go to the promised land. 
And the Bible doesn't really tell what was going on with God and Terah in any way. But you do get a glimpse in the book of Judges. And I have, no, Joshua. Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua says actually that, um, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So Terah, this whole family, is living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which I think is in modern-day Iran. And they're supposed to go to Canaan, but they don't. They go a little ways, and then they stop. And so God comes to Abraham at the beginning of verse 12, the verses you were reading, and he says, go. I want you to go, and I want you to go. And I want you, even if you're leaving your family, I want you to go. And not just leave this land, but leave leave your family uh, uh, and 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 go. Because the family was probably involved. I mean, Ur was a, um, the, the land they were in, Ur was already revolved on moon worship, the worship of the moon. Yep. And so they were all, when Joshua said that they're worshiping foreign gods, it was probably a cult of moon worship. Um, oh, I thought this is interesting, Greg, because Keller points this out. He said, at this point in the story, God has created, his creation for redemption, right? God has created mankind. There's the fall. The kind of the belief in God is kind of petered out. Like the world has gotten so bad that God brings the flood. But even after that, the belief in God is kind of all petered out. And the, the, the metaphor Keller uses said basically, the last, the flicker of the last candle of belief in God has kind of gone out. And mm -hmm. God is coming back in to reignite that. And it's not, it's, and it's spiritual and physical because God says, I'm going to rekindle that candle of belief in God by choosing someone named Abraham. Who isn't choosing me, I'm choosing him. But he had, a, but also, I'm going to create a great nation. So I'm going, to, I'm going to make a name for you. But his wife has been barren. His wife can't have children. So, so I, I gotta, I'm going to rekindle this flame, but I'm going to do it through someone who can't even, I'm going to create a great nation out of you, but I can't even do it physically because, or I have to overcome, God first has to overcome that because Sarah can't have children. So anyway, all of that is kind of backdrop background to God's call of Abraham and Abraham's life. And I thought that was fascinating and worth, and worth re, uh, recanting here, recounting here. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting stuff. I think it's modern day Iraq. Is it Iraq, not Iran? Oh my goodness! I'm going to apologize to my Iranian and Iraqi friends that's, and any of our listeners. That's, that's what I. That's what I uh, learned from uh, gotquestions.org or got.com, whatever it is. You're fact checking um, me in real time, Greg. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Lord knows I need that. When verse one, when he says, "Go." from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. He is, God is asking him to give up everything, right. to leave everything. His, right. his, um, his father's household. Um, that would include his father's gods. Everything. And just go. Yeah. I mean, that's like, it's, it's really shocking, you know, and, you know, in verse four, it says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. And he was 75 years old when he set out for her, set out from Haran. Um, right. And Hebrews 11 verse eight amplifies that and says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out 
not knowing where he was going. And I think the old translations say he went out not knowing whither he went. Hmm. Didn't know, but I'll, but he was going to go anyway. Um, that's like a whole talk right there, Greg. Because like when we follow God, he's like, I'll follow you, but I want to the plan first, right? If you just show me all the way it's going to work and all these things. Yeah, I just asked you a question not long ago about a sliding glass doors kind of question. Is there anything in life of doing something different? Do you ever regret anything, a different path in life, a road not taken? And I, um, when I ask you that, I think I often in my own life think, oh, what if things have been different? What if I'd have gone a different way and made some different decisions? And then just recently, I think God's been helping with that because I think, you know, when I was a much younger, as a young Christian, I really did pray this this line, because I, I read in a Christian book somewhere, I, I said, Lord, move me about on life's checkerboard, wherever you want to move me. Hmm. And then, you know, I just like, you're, you're the one in control, you do it. And um, and he did. And so we moved out, we lived in New York City for a while, we lived in Boston, D.C., New York City, back here in the, the Midwestern United States. And God's moved us around all kinds of places. And then I look back and say, geez, would life have been better some other way? And I'm, I'm recently I'm thinking, wait a second, you prayed to be moved around. You you asked God to move you around wherever you, you know, and um, and he's done that. And so that's his plan unfolding for me. But he didn't, he, God doesn't unfold it for you up front. It takes, you know, God's, this Abram's a great story for that, right? You, I imagine you felt that in ministry too, some, you know, in your life. And God says, just go and start. And you don't know where it's going to end. You don't know how it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, I've had those same thoughts. And the more and more I reflect on it, the more I see the goodness and hand of God and how he directed my steps. You know, yeah. I, I love that Proverbs 16, 9, where it says, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. It's great. I, I love that because it's like, it looks, you know, we think that we make plans, but, um, right. and we do make plans, but a lot of times our plans don't work out the way we think that they they should, but ultimately the Lord directs our steps. Well, so, that's where all Genesis is going, because at the end, when Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and ends up, you know, running Egypt and saving the whole world from famine, meets his brothers again. Remember that? And he says, yeah. you, meant, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's kind of the capstone verse of the whole book of Genesis. where There's all these evil things going on. This is worship of the moon, whatever it is. All kinds of things going on. It's like, yep. And uh, from the fall, from, you know, the, the serpent in the garden, the you know, first sin, all the way through here, like uh, humankind is continually turning its back on the Lord. Mm. There's so much wickedness and evil. And God says, oh, it's on my plan. Is, and yet my plan is still unfolding. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yeah. It's interesting that, it, you know, this chapter it's like God is the one who speaks to Abram, but then Abram takes his whole family. You know, he takes he takes his wife and his nephew, all their possessions, and and they head out. And yeah, there's yeah. like nobody's nobody questions nobody questions it. Um, then God gives him this promise in verse seven: "To your offspring, I will give this land." And so instead of settling in the land he builds an altar um which is kind of cool hmm. yeah, yeah so some of the commentators i read so that's like a marker right so he's not 
maybe it's not it's not like a temple or it's not permanent but it's a marker to say you know lord i'm here and i'm in the place you want me to be and you know um, yeah but then he continues because verse 10 says there was a famine so he ends up going down to egypt and what did you what do you make of this section where he uh tells his wife hey you're a beautiful woman which i read one commentator said she's like 60 years old at this point right so she and must have been really stunningly beautiful yeah absolutely and then um it happens again a couple chapters later um and then she i think she's even older because she's, she's uh had the baby by then so she must have been just astonishingly beautiful right um and thankfully by the way it probably was not a culture as youth focused as we are now right and western culture in particular was so focused on youth is king and i think the other cultures had a better healthier perspective on that that there could be beauty your whole life and i think that that's actually a flaw here but of western culture so do but you I think, think there's anything reason. anything we're supposed to make of this? Like, just are we just seeing that Abram's just, you know, a flawed human being here? Yes, yes. It's, it brings up a massively important point because you, you can absolutely, especially if you're on the single line like we were talking about, you read all these passages as examples for us to follow. So Abram, with three major world religions, a huge portion of the human race look to Abram as their father, right? Yeah. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all look back to Abram. And yeah, he's kind of like a hero, right? Absolutely. So if you want to be close to God, and and, and there's a pastor we'll find somewhere where God speaks to him like a friend, right? So I mean, like if you want to be close to God, if you want to be, you know, try to be like be, be like Abraham, because he's an example for us to follow. And you can read the Old Testament that way. These are stories of inspirational stories to show us the way. And they're not. He, he things like this show you that he was a complete recipient of free grace god calls him out of a family that's doing moon worship or something else and says i'm going to build a great nation out of you why because i choose to because i love you not because you earned it or you're good he's not our example to follow there are great lessons from his life we can learn about right incredible lessons but these stories are not primarily examples for us to follow they're showing us the pattern of salvation which is that he is the complete recipient of god's free grace and that's I'm glad you brought it up, Craig, because it's a huge lesson to take right from here. He makes his, and he doesn't learn from me. He does it again a few chapters later, right? I'm going to save my own skin by giving my wife to someone else. And, um, you know, it's uh, not meant to be an example for us to follow, that's for sure. Yeah. What do you think? Any Any thoughts you have on this story? I actually agree with what you said. I I think it is a great reminder that Abraham, that, yeah, we shouldn't strive necessarily to be like Abraham. He was a flawed human being like, like we are. Right. Um, but he was the, but you also see God's, so you see God's grace in that, right? That yeah. he was able to make mistakes, but he was still, um, walking by faith and, and following God because actually what he does here is not there's 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 kind of a different way you can look at it because he's not exactly lying because she was a relative um she was a half sister and and it comes out in the next story when he does it again and he says besides she really is you know uh, i think same father different mother right yeah but there is some deceit deceitfulness in it for sure so yes. it's it's 
it definitely shows uh abraham's flaws do you want to continue on and uh yeah, so this that, is one question about this. It's not, one observation. I didn't see this in the commentaries, Greg, and I don't know if there's a good answer to it, but Pharaoh has some sense of morality and justice, which I think is interesting. Pharaoh doesn't say that Pharaoh already has many wives, although polygamy was certainly common in that culture. Pharaoh just, you know, hey, this beautiful woman comes into my country, I'll just take her as a wife. And that's mm -hmm. fine. And he, and in culture, if, culturally, if we could kill a husband, he, that's fine too, we'll take a wife. Um, maybe it's like wife 1001, probably was it doesn't really say here that pharaohs already had a many wives but you know that was common at the time but taking someone else's wife now that's bad and pharaoh really comes out hard on abraham and abram at this point in verse 18 what is this you've done to me why did you tell me she was your wife like it's obviously immoral like he has a moral compass pharaoh of egypt is a moral compass right it says you know despite all these other things that's flat out wrong and how dare you do this to me? You should have known better to do that, right? Of all the other things they're doing in society, you know, whatever it is, they he still knew that that was somehow wrong. He didn't have the Ten Commandments. He wasn't, you know, uh, uh, wasn't Jewish. You know, just uh, probably had some other kinds of gods, but somehow then knew that that was that was immoral at the time. It really struck him as immoral. Yeah, no, that's a that is an interesting point. You know, this pagan king had to rebuke Abraham. <laughs> right. And he didn't say, well, I'm the, I'm the king. I can make it moral by waving my hand. I'll take your wife too and I'll kill you now. And um, I'll take what I want. Uh, and uh, you lied so off with your head and now she's my wife. And he wasn't cavalier towards a moral code. He felt like there is a moral standard and I am obligated to keep it. And I can't, you know, here, take her back. <laughs> um go away but if he said he definitely had so i feel like there is a moral standard in this world and i am obligated to follow it and there are consequences if i break it that so somehow they in essence i apply the story he knows that they have these sickness and plagues somehow he figures and deduces it's because there's this woman here and i'm in sin because she's not my wife she's someone else's wife like this he knows that's the cause and effect it's not explicit here at all but he gets that somehow and um, wants to put a stop to it, this this sin in his life. It's really interesting because you can think about what we, you and I, you know, you're you're a full time Christian worker. You're trying to convince people you're you're a sinner and you need Jesus, right? And uh, the threshold be in this our culture today. I'm not a sinner. Where do you come off telling me I'm a sinner? Get lost, <laughs> right? And but there is a moral code. Everybody knows uh, when you get down to it. No, there's there's a moral code out there somewhere. It's apart from me. And I've broken it. Even my own moral standards I haven't kept. And this their story of Pharaoh I thought was fascinating, a little microcosm of that. Um, in in an ancient Egyptian culture where, where he would have had his own, you know, Egyptian religions, but not um certainly not Judeo, uh the Jewish Ten Commandments or anything like that. Mm. No, anyway, that's no, that's really, really good. Interesting. Little side observation. But before that, before that rebuke in verse 16, it says that uh, God treated Abram well for her, or, or actually Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake. Yeah. So yeah. you see God bless Abraham, even, even when he didn't do what he should have done. You know, God yeah, continued to protect him. Right. And even when Abram acted like a liar, God didn't call back his promise to Abraham because 
the promise didn't depend on uh, the promise depended on God, not on Abram. That's right. That's right. Uh, he's the source of all it, not not rewarding Abraham for good behavior, um, but God blessing because God wants to bless him. The um, the other thing that people read this, even the casual reader picks up is that, and the commentators are going to pick this up too. They said that this is basically a precursor of Moses um, uh, and the uh, leading the uh, 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 Jewish captive nation out of it. Uh, out of Egypt, because uh, just like uh, in that story here, Abraham gets great wealth and is able to, it is, the plagues come to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh kicks him out, but he gets to keep all his wealth. That's yeah. exactly what right? Um, after 400 years of captivity, they grow to about a million people and there are plagues, the Pharaoh kicks him out and they walk out with great plunder, the Bible says, great wealth. It's a very, it's a pre-shadow of, what's the word I'm looking for? Foreshadowing. Of things to come. Yep. So, yep. So, uh, what about chapter thirteen? Abram and Lot. This, yeah, this is interesting. I'm still studying this and trying to get to it, but I do th a couple thoughts. One is that this is so that it, it, we won't read it now. But if anyone goes back and read it, Abram and Lot are both getting really wealthy because God's blessing them both. Then um, they got a problem, not because they're in sin, but because of God's blessing, because they both have tons and tons of stuff, livestock possessions, people are there, they, each of their teams are, are quarreling with each other. So they, the land signed up to support both of them. They got to separate. And Abraham is the, the senior, the older, who absolutely had the right to say, all right, I'm the older one. You're the younger. I'm taking the good land. You get lost. But he gives Lot the choice which uh, I'm not sure what the significance of that is, but commentators have noticed that. I remember that. To say he doesn't have to do that. He ordinarily would not have done that. No one else would have done that, but he gives Lot the option. And says, so Lot, you, you get to choose wherever you want to go. And in verse nine, he says, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. So totally your option. And I'll, I'll obey what you say, which is, the younger serving the older, which is another thing that comes up later in Genesis, right? Um, with Jacob and Esau. And then the rest of the story is that Lot looks up and says, well, it's pretty obvious that they're standing at a high point. This one over here, the valley over here is nice and green and lush. It's well, well watered everywhere. The valley of the Jordan in verse 10, well watered everywhere. Uh, and um, yeah, there's some bad cities in there called Sodom and Gomorrah, but we won't worry about that now. And I'll take that. Thank you very much. And, and Abram says, okay, you take that and I'll go I'll the, the other way. So Maybe it's a commentary on Abram's faith that he, uh, regardless of which way, he, that he knew God was going to take care of him or he could trust God, um, whichever, whichever direction or whatever land he got to choose. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, and I definitely think that the, the, um, the verse, you know, walk by faith and not by sight comes up, uh, verse 10 said, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan. So Lot was clearly walking by sight and not by faith, thinking if I want to keep building my wealth, I've got to get in this desert climate, I need to get the place that's well watered and lush and green, right? And it's interesting that that ends up being a bad choice. Horrible choice. And he ends up losing <laughs> family, losing everything. Which, which, is, which is so true when we walk by sight, how often do we make the wrong choice? Yeah. 
Yeah, and he was willing to overlook all the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, all that, and just say, well, it's going to bring me wealth and pros prosperity, so I'll overlook all that. And it, it's his undoing um, in the end. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and God still has great promises to Abram at the end of chapter 13. You know, um, it's interesting. They're also very territorial promises. I'll give you this land and your descendants forever. And uh, there are times and there, there are times when in the, the history of the Old Testament where under different kings, David and others, they took more of this land. But they never got, there's never been a time in history where all this land was um, given to Abram and his descendants. So um, some people look at that and say, well, it's still a question of prophecy that may still yet to be fulfilled, but who knows? Yeah. So do you want to continue on? You know, let's do one. Let's just do 15. Okay. Um, yeah. 15 is a great, great chapter. Yeah. Why don't you start? Because the so we, 15... well, well, so let's just summarize 14. So then Abraham ends up having to rescue Lot. Yeah. And then he runs into this guy named uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is a yes. <laughs> very interesting encounter. But then we get to chapter 15, where um, God speaks to him, Abraham, in a vision. So do you want to read it? Yeah, I'll, I'll start reading it. And um, let's just talk about it a little bit, because I know we've talked about this before. Um, this is uh, uh, Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. Oh, for the listener, we should say, at this point, he's called Abram, and then later he's called Abraham. So uh, you can do that. Um, hey, actually, Greg, why don't you go ahead and read, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay. Um, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great re reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one whom who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So he took him outside and said, look up into the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him. Cut them in two and arrange them in halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not of their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there, 
but I will punish the nation that they they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will not go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at it. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure, has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kezizites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perez, Parasites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gashites, and Jebusites. Wow. That's a lot of sites. That's a lot of sites. And the Mosquito Bites. <laughs> anyway, what, a, what an amazing, uh, uh, yeah, we've talked about this. This is a, a powerful passage where he makes this, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Um, so yeah, talk, talk us through that, Jim, explain what's happening here. Well, a couple of things, I think, because the ceremony is fascinating itself. Um, again, I think illuminated for me for initially in this, this, uh, sermon from Tim Keller and then her others talking about it too. Um, but before you get to that, there's this incredible moment of doubt, right? Because God says, comes to him and says, look at the heavens and count the stars. You're able to count them in verse five. And so shall your descendants be. But God has said those words to him before. And, and it's, it is, this starts with Abraham in verse two saying, you know, God's saying, you're going to have a great reward. God says, what are you going to give me? I'm childless. You said I was going to have an heir, but I still don't. And um, he must have done some kind of estate planning because he knew already who was going to give his estate to. It's going to be Eliezer of Damascus. So he already did some kind of will and trust in estates planning, whatever. And um, God repeats this promise. And, and then verse, this is such an interesting contrast, Greg, is in verse six, this verse is quoted later in Hebrews. It says, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And that's a cornerstone verse of the Protestant Reformation because Martin Luther really hung on that and really got me really, really dug into that and understood it and saying, wait a second, it's from belief in the Lord. It's from faith that you get righteousness, not from your own works and effort, right? God is declaring you righteous because of what he did. And this isn't great. In verse six, he believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to Abraham as, as a righteousness, right? So he's great faith, right? Wonderful. But then a few verses later, verse, right? right well, so the next verse, God says, I'm going to give you this land. And then verse eight, this is just the astonishing verse for me because he doubts God right to his face. God says, I'm going to give you this land to possess it. And then Abram says, how may I know that I will possess it? Mm -hmm. The chutzpah. Can you believe it? I mean, God has just said, you know, it's like, and he's almost like he's saying, yeah, I hear you. You said that before years ago. I still don't have an heir. I still don't have any kids. I'm getting old. And I know you keep saying that. And I believe it. You know, and, and two verses ago, he believed the Lord. And but now it's like, yeah, how do I know? It's this incredible doubt, right? It's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, it we gives do hope the same thing, though. We do the same thing. Yeah. We say, oh, yeah. yeah, God, I believe it. I believe 
you know, when I hear you say that, but five minutes later, I'm not sure. Can you prove that to me? Well, there's that <laughs> New Testament story where Jesus said uh, to the guy who wants to, I think it's, do you remember the story? Where the, the guy says to Jesus, I do believe, help me my unbelief, right? Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that story and this are really comforters to all of us who have doubts from time to time. Because everybody has doubts. And then people have serious doubts. They say, maybe I, I'm not sure I believe it. I don't know. Well, you know, you're in good company because Abraham, patriarch of the faith, doubted God and doubted God right to his face, right? So, and God, and God could have zapped him right there and said, I don't need to take this from someone like you. You know, I'm sovereign king and Lord and you're not, and I'm just going to zap you off the face of the earth. But he doesn't. Um, he goes into this kind of ancient ceremony. So do you want to talk about that a little bit, Greg, and what the ceremony meant and how that worked? Well, it was a covenant. Usually it was a covenant between two parties. And so they would slaughter these animals and then walk between them. And basically their covenant was that um, they were each saying to each other, uh, we will keep this covenant. If we don't, we will be, you know, um, we just, we just, how would you say it? We deserve to be slaughtered just like these animals do. Yeah, may it be done to me. Yeah, may this be done to me. If I, if I break our, this covenant, but the amazing right. thing about this particular thing, Abraham was probably sitting there waiting for him to be called to walk through the, uh, to walk between the pieces, but only God walks through the pieces. Yeah. That's, that's and exactly so, right. Yeah. And so, it, yeah. So what's the, what's the, uh, the, the, uh, key point here. Well, the key point is that you're right. If two peers making this contract, they both had walked between the the pieces. If a king was making it with a subject, the king would have made the subject walk to the pieces, but the king would never have walked to the pieces, right? They, they would have said, you pledge to me, but I'm the, king, I'm the king, I don't pledge to you. So you're right. That's what Abraham would have expected, but he sits there. God shows up at the end and God passes through the pieces and then the ceremony ends and God never even makes Abraham pass through the pieces himself. So God, it's, and how's this, I want to make sure I get this right. God's like saying, look, if, um, if, if you don't, if I don't keep my pen of the bargain to you, my covenant you promised you, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm going to make you a great nation. If I don't keep it, may I be cut up like this. But if you don't keep your end of the bargain either, may I be cut up like this. So and God, ultimately say, he was. And, and uh, exactly, exactly. And ultimately he was because it, it all points to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Who would, who had to be cut up for, um, for all of us in order for us to be, you know, redeemed back to God. Right. That's right. That's right. Isaiah, uh, I think, uh, talks about that, how he was cut off. Uh, he was cut off from the land of the living. Look on the cross. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was united with the father from all eternity, all eternity past. And on the, on the cross, the father turns his back on Jesus, right? So God God is the one who says, "I, this is my covenant. I will keep, absolutely keep my promise with you. And if if even though you do not keep your end of the bargain, I will keep it for you in your place. And that's when they say, when does God ever suffer that? And in no religion, God ever comes down and does this. No one, God is always the king on top of the mountain. Only in Christianity is God that says, I'm the one that comes down and I will... I will suffer this for you in your place. That's the distinctive and the offer of Christianity, right? Mm. Yep. Yep. That is it. 
That yeah. is it. And so here we see all the way back in Genesis, a foreshadowing of what Christ was going to do. Um, I heard somebody recently talk about how the Bible is all about us and our struggles to trust and um, and our insecurity. Oh, wow. And, and fears. Yeah. And how uh, it's it's all about, like, are we going to walk in fear or are we going to walk by faith? How do we handle insecurity? And it's all about trust. And if you look at the life of Abraham, it's all about trust. Well, he goes in Egypt and he's afraid they're going to kill him. So he says, here, take my wife. Say you're my sister. He does it again later. Right. Um, there's a good moment where he says, so you know what, Lot, you can have the green land. I'm trusting God. And then later he gets this right here in these passages we just read. You know, God says, I'm going to give you all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. He keeps saying that. But how do I know? Yeah, let's just say that. Right. Doubt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And how, and Insecurity. Yep. Insecurity, fears and trust. And this person, uh, you know, makes a big point because a lot of times we we'll say, well, what's the biggest issue in the book of Genesis or in the Bible as a whole? It's our sin. Right. It's it's us. It's it's our sin. But he, he says, no, it's not our sin. Sin is the result of our lack of trust, our insecurity or our, our, our giving into our fears. Yeah. Yeah. That we shouldn't focus on sin. We should focus on we should focus on the you know lack of it, trust. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's pretty cool. But I also think this is a great uh place to to pause and stop. Um because it's a, a, a powerful reminder of what God was going to ultimately do and how he was willing to keep his end of the, the bargain. That even though we we failed him, um, he was broken for us, so that we might be redeemed. Yeah, here's Isaiah fifty three. I'll just read this Isaiah Isaiah fifty three verses five and six. But he was pierced through for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Uh, one more verse. I, I say 53 verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. So it makes us out of gospel addicts, Greg. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com Stay tuned for our next episode and remember on your worst days you're never beyond the reach of God's grace and on your best days you're never beyond the need of God's grace See you next time